Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Now, if you know anything about us and you heard that really long passage being read, we are not going to cover that whole passage this morning. In fact, we're not going to make it past verse 12 of chapter 5. But this section that we're beginning to look at today, the very first point is in verse 12 and it continues through verse 14. Last week we returned to the book of Romans and we, we came to this exciting climax of the, the first 11 verses. Verse 11, Paul began this new section where, where he's focusing on a believer's assurance. And we're going to still be in that same theme, a believer's security or a believer's assurance. But in verses 12 through 21, Paul comes at that from a different angle. So after this long look at human sin, followed by God's exclusive answer in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul summarizes all of the promises and the privileges that we have now that we've been declared right with God. And Paul writes all of that from chapter 5 through chapter 8 to, to give us an unshakable confidence about, about our salvation. Paul said that we have been justified by faith, or having been justified by faith in Christ, we have positional peace, we have standing grace, we have the hope of glorification, we have hope in this life through trials, we, we have the Holy Spirit's presence, we have God's love poured out in our hearts, we, we have a demonstration of that love uh, by the cross, we have reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ, and finally, what we saw last week, the greatest blessing of all is we get God Himself. We get to glory in Him and enjoy Him forever. Now, if that's not a list of, list of blessings, I don't know what is. And as I said, that last one is the greatest of, of all. What is the, the chief aim or end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But in verse 12, Paul takes up a, a new thought. He he transitions from assurance based upon uh, or because uh, of all of these benefits that we have to security or assurance because of a significant change that took place due to our justification. Or if you want to use the, the terms of Colossians, we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the, the kingdom of His dear Son. And Paul will outline this morning for us Who's the head of both of those kingdoms, at least the human representative, and, and then the, the benefits or the, the detriment of being in one or the, or the other? In verses 12 through 21, Paul will say the same thing about six different ways. But in all of them, he compares and contrasts two figures that cast their shadow over every human being that, that ever lived and ever will live. And both of those figures have an inheritance uh, associated with them. And as you heard in the passage, those figures are Adam and Jesus Christ. Adam brings a reign of sin and death. And Christ brings a reign of grace and life. And I'll warn you, if you haven't already read ahead, or you may have gotten a taste of it as you were listening to Paul read and uh, Paul not the Apostle, but our Paul, um, as you were listening to him read, these, these verses are arguably the most technical and difficult to interpret 
in all of the book of Romans. And that's not an overstatement. Um, what would you assume is the most difficult passage in Romans to, to interpret? I mean, if you were a preacher and you were going to preach the book of Romans, you knowing the passage that's coming, which, which passage would you tighten up your chin strap before you, you, you dove into? Would it be Romans 1 that's talking about homosexuality? Maybe Romans 3 that talks about total depravity? Um, how about Romans 7, where Paul gets into that, you know, the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing, and the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. I mean, was Paul a believer there? Was he an unbeliever there? You know, well, stay tuned. We'll get to that passage. Maybe you would say Romans 9 through 11, talking about election and God's absolute sovereignty. Jacob and Esau, that's not the passage that I would look forward to. Well, this passage has far more technical intricacies and, and therefore pages in modern commentaries dedicated to it than, than any of those other passages. You might find a lot of writing about it because people wrangle over, ah, you know, this, this is hard, I need to try to understand this. But technical difficulties, it's, it's this passage that's in front of us. It's also a passage that's been the setting of several significant controversies in church history. Augustine, for example, used this passage to develop his doctrine of original sin. Unfortunately, from the Latin text, so he, uh, uh, which obscured his correct conclusion with some poorly sourced exegesis, Pelagius also used these verses to justify his heresy. The human beings are born with a blank slate, that, that they're, they're born without a sin nature. Their wills are not affected in any way by, by the fall. And then John Wesley took that a, a step further, a little closer to the truth than, than Pelagius, but still error with his Arminianism. And while the exegesis here has many twists and turns, the, the truth that it teaches is, is just very straightforward um, and really not that hard to grasp. There are two figures, there are two acts, two actions that they, that they, they, they perform, they do, and then there are two, two results. MacArthur, I think he's correct when you approach a passage like, like this one in Romans. He said, while there are aspects of this text that seem complex and maybe even beyond human comprehension, we cannot allow those parts to cause us to miss the very simple and clear truths that that it contains. He, he said it, it, it's like the law of, uh, of gravity. You accept the law of gravity without fully understanding it. So it's possible for believers to accept and live according to God's truth without fully comprehending how God, God does it. I mean, to put it simply, Romans 5, 12 through 21, takes a, a look at humanity as, as a whole. It, it looks at humankind from, from the macro. I mean, it, it, it helicopters up above the, the individual blessings that we've been talking about that, that are believers. It helicopters up about 20,000 feet and allows us to get a lay of the land from the Garden of Eden all the way to, to heaven. And what we see whenever we, we, we take that elevated look it, is there are two towering figures that cast their shadow over all of human history. And those two figures are Adam and Jesus Christ. And the reign of, of both brings certain things. What are the two most important figures in, in human history? Well, you don't have to, to wonder the answer. 
They're right here. I mean, Paul says this is the answer. Adam and Jesus Christ. And where verses 1 through 11 focuses on the benefits that you have in the gospel. Um, if you want to use the, the forest and the trees analogy, those are the trees. And they're important trees, full of ec- excellent fruit, which is why we looked at them. But now verses 12 through 21 reminds you of the forest. This is the ground. This is the ground that those trees grow in. There's Adam, who represents all mankind outside of the gospel. You, if you're unsaved this morning, or before you were unsaved, and then there's Christ, who represents the, the redeemed. As I said, there are two men who are marked by two acts that brings about two results. There's the disobedience of Adam that resulted in sin and death spreading to the whole world. And then there's the redemption of Jesus that resulted in grace and eternal, eternal life for, for all who will believe. And, and Paul says, as powerful and as wide-sweeping as Adam's fall was, Christ's work is even greater, which is the, the gospel hope of this passage. And because Christ's work is greater, that brings us hope and assurance, which is the point. Which is Paul's primary theme in chapter 5. Look, if you would, at verse 15. Here's where the hope comes in. Notice he is starting with a contrast here. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if the transgression of the one... For by, if by the transgression of the one many died, watch this, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Super abundant words here. I mean, the power of Christ's grace, Paul says, is stronger than the, the sin and death that was brought into the world by Adam. What Adam lost, Christ regained. And if you're in Christ, you're no longer in Adam. Here Paul declares to us the the vanity and the vexation of Ecclesiastes that that we feel living outside of the garden has been altered by the work of of Jesus Christ. I mean, you recall our walk through the thorns and the thistles of of Ecclesiastes. I mean, if you don't, I would highly recommend you listening to that that series or, or reading the book. I mean, Ecclesiastes explains life to us. It it explains living in a Genesis 3, 3 world. I mean, it's a commentary on living un, under the curse. It explains why you feel a number of the things that, that, that you feel. It answers for us what is living, uh, living like a- after the fall. I mean, if there is a curse, then, then how should I live in it? And, and if the curse is there, is that all we have to look forward to? I mean, the summary and answer to, to the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives in his introduction and his conclusion. They're, they're like the North and the South Pole that, that holds all of the, of the book together, the, the, the top and the bottom of the bun, if you will. And in his introduction, Solomon says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You probably remember that phrase. That's what he says in the beginning. And then in his conclusion in chapter 12, he says, God will bring everything into into judgment. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and God will reconcile that vanity in the end. 
His conclusion is God will make right what, what is wrong. God will reconcile it all. And Paul shows us right here how he does that. How does God deal with the curse and reconcile all of the vanity? He does it through the person of Jesus Christ. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's Solomon's proposition. And the rest of the book, Solomon uh, explores every aspect of human life proves it, makes us look the curse in, in the face. And he finds it operative everywhere. I mean, the word vanity means futility. It means frustration. It means chasing the wind. It's the, the conclusion that he draws over and over about living in a Genesis 3 world. I mean, the word vanity doesn't really translate the Hebrew havel very, very well. That word, it kind of has the idea of breath or... Or vapor. It's like the, the steam that comes off of your breath on a, on a cold morning, which is why the, the New Testament illustrates our life as a, as a vapor. Solomon says all of life is like that. I mean, life is hard to get, to get your hands on, and just when you think you, you get a hold of it, it slips through your fingers. I mean, it disappears as quickly as it comes. Uh, life is like trying to chew cotton candy. The moment that you think you're taking a bite of it, it, it melts away. Only life is not as sweet as cotton candy. I mean, it actually takes two English words to translate the, the one Hebrew word for, for, for Havel. I mean, they're, they're frustration and, and futility, and they both come from a, a fallen world. I mean, futility means they're, they're, there's just this feeling or sense that there's no coherent plan, no purpose in, in what's taking place or, or happening. And, and everywhere Solomon looked in life, that, that, that's what he found, whether it was work or education or wisdom or success or, or pleasure, whatever it is. He, he, he found no answer to the curse. He finds just the opposite. He finds more futility. It's exactly what Moses said in Genesis 3. I mean, you remember Genesis 3, the curse? God told Adam when he pronounced the curse, from this point forward, you came from the dust, you're going to toil your life in the dirt, and you're going to return to the dirt. And that is what brings futility in, in life. And Solomon knew the curse well. He, he, like you, he felt it. And like you, he looked for a solution. And he didn't find one in this world. When we looked at the book, we, uh, I asked you if you ever, if you remember uh, the, those four guys that, that played the jug in the old uh, TV show Hee Haw. You remember that? You probably see the reruns on, uh, you know, on those, the channels that, that nobody watches. They're singing the song of Ecclesiastes. You remember the song? Gloom, despair, agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. Bill Barrick said that's the... The song of Ecclesiastes. Well, Paul is now here in Romans 5 to help you replace that tune with victory in Jesus. Paul is here in the New Testament to remind us where all of that futility came from and then tell you that God has conquered it in Jesus Christ. The things crooked that we can't make straight... God has aligned in Christ. Jesus Christ is the spiritual orthodontist of heaven. I mean, He straightens the unstraightenable. He bends the, the unbendable. And the smoky vanity that Solomon saw and that we experience has blown away at the reign of Christ and has been replaced with, with joy and, and paradise and, 
And even right now, in Christ, God has, has restored a walk with him in the, in the cool of the day. I mean, it's still among the thorns and thistles until heaven. But we can now have fellowship with God, even outside of, of the garden, which is what Paul said in verse 11. We, we glory in God as believers. And we do that as we wait for the rest of the curse to be taken away and replaced with the, with the flowers of, of heaven. Or, or to say it simply, we get God in the midst of the curse while we wait for this new creation brought about in Jesus Christ. I think this passage is also very helpful because it makes, makes very clear that Paul did not consider Adam some kind of mythical figure. I mean, Paul saw Adam as a real man from, from history. I mean, just like Jesus. Paul took Genesis 1 literally. These are the words of our Lord in Matthew 19. Jesus answered, or he answered and said, Have you not read... Where do you want us to read, Lord? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? Oh, he wants us to read in the beginning. What specifically? Here's Genesis 1, 2. Made them male and female. And he goes on to say, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. I mean, Adam and Eve are not allegorical figures where we learn ethical lessons about God. They're, they're not mystical stories to explain the, the origins of the world to the uneducated and unscientific mind. And now we, we've excelled above all of that. They're real historical figures, according to Paul and according to Jesus. And Paul says the reality of Adam confirms the nature of sin and the source of death. Unless you think this is just some theological conundrum that, that only seminary professors wrangle over and waste ink on, or something that doesn't really matter for today, I mean, this truth is, is intensely applicable. With so much talk about race and, and racism. I mean, because a literal atom confirms that, that the human race is one. I mean, the, the historicity of Adam that Paul declares here says that we are all one blood, not multiple branches of an evolutionary tree on, on, on different levels. I mean, this says there's not a white race or an Asian race or a brown and black race. There's the human race. And they all come from one man, Adam. And all the attempts to declare otherwise are just a, a satanic strategy to distract us from the real heritage that you should worry about. Not to mention so chaos and division pitting people against each other. I mean, instead of seeing the world through a biblical lens of people being either in Adam, in sin, and in eternal danger, or in Christ, which is what really matters, the world focuses on trivial differences like uh, pigmentation or skin color or, or cultural heritage. Rather than faith focusing on the reign of sin over all hearts, Satan tries, us to get, tries to get us to look away from that. I mean, he wants us to see life through the lens of, of oppressed versus the oppressors when sin is the one that actually oppresses. I mean, Tom Schreiner is right. He said Adam declares, a historical Adam, declares there is no biological or theological basis for racism where one race or ethnic group can claim, uh, can claim they're, they're better than another. And Paul says the reason that one can't claim to be better than another is because there is no group of people 
that are untouched by the fall. I mean, we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. We're either saved or we're lost. We're either redeemed or we're, we're damned. We're either in the kingdom of darkness or we're in the kingdom of, of His dear Son. And, and, and the most evident proof that we're all in Adam and we all have sin natures is that we all die which is what Paul introduces today. Look, if you would, at verse 12 of Romans 5. Here's Paul's introduction to the glorious hope that we have in Christ. He starts with the, the reality or, or the bad news. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This verse introduces what Rick Holland called a short history of death's long reign. It's one verse, and it covers a lot. And it answers the question that we've all wondered at times, but, but, but few people outside of the Bible know, know the answer to. I mean, why does everyone have to die? Why does death reign in our world? Or, or where did death come from to begin with? I mean, was it God's design What's the extent of it? Uh, how does it affect Christians and, and unbelievers alike? I mean, is there any answer to it? And Paul will answer all those questions and, and more in the next several verses. But, but his outline in this introduction, this introductory verse, is, is pretty straightforward. Uh, Paul said, sin entered through Adam and death entered through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. We, We'll call it four explanations about where death comes from in, in our world. And he explains it through the, the universal reach of Adam's sin. And then the universal result of sin's presence. And then the individual reign of sin's consequences. And then the individual repetition of sin's practice. He says there's a universal reach and a universal result. That's the first half of verse 12. And in the second half, he focuses on us as individuals, not on Adams. They're, they're not on Adam. There's an individual reign and an individual repetition. You'll get these one by one as we go along. Four explanations. The first one about where death comes from is there's an, there's an universal reach of Adam's sin. Look, if you would, at verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. And you have to stop right there. I mean, Paul starts with, with the word therefore or for this reason, which shows you that what he's about to say is connected from something that that he said before. And, and what it's connected to is, is one of the areas that, that's debated. I mean, there's some people which will reach all the way back to Romans 1, saying that everything that Paul has said up to this point, he's going to summarize right, right now. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this is actually an exposition on, on verse 10. I mean, if you look back at, at verse 10, at the end of verse 10, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, or better, in his life. So now Paul's going to explain how we're saved in his life, in the, in the, in the life of Christ. We were once in Adam and now we're in Christ, which is actually a pretty good option. But the words that, that he uses here, this, this, this word therefore in your, in your English, 
is just a, a common phrase that Paul uses to connect his thought, connects, connect his thoughts in, in, in writings, which is what I think he's doing here. And there's nothing specific in this text which tells us where to, to connect it. So when that's the case, then you have to let context and the theme be, be your guide. And if you keep the theme of the section that, that Paul has here, then, then he's just adding to the thought that he began with back in verse 1 about assurance. I mean, he's saying, having been, having been justified, we have assurance evidenced by all these blessings outlined in the first 11 verses. And those blessings were secured in the victorious work of Christ, which brought a change to us all. I mean, he reconciled us to God, and in doing so, he is the one who undoes the, the reigning work, work of Adam. I mean, Paul is saying everything I just got done saying being in Him is the ground or the basis of, of all of those, those blessings. We've been declared justified by God based on the work of Christ. Here are all the blessings of, of the work of Christ. Now look at the work of Christ. It's what has translated you. It's what has undone the, the curse. We glory in God and have hope through His reconciling work. And that work is the basis or the reason that, that Christ is, is greater, greater than Adam. And if you do that, you just kind of follow along, read like this. Pick it up in verse 11. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And it's like Paul saying, and let me explain a little further. Just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, who is a type of him who was to come. Drop down to verse 15. Here's the contrasting work. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. I mean, notice he's comparing here the result in reach of Adam with the result in reach of Christ all under the theme of assurance. If you're in Christ, you're, you, you're now under His reign and His reach. And he looks at the work of Adam first. And then he looks at, at Christ and says it's greater. And Paul starts here by answering the question, where, where, did, where did sin come from? Before he explains where death comes from, because they're both connected. Sin and death are connected in, in Scripture. I mean, we all know that sin is present around us and, and in us, but Paul tells us here where it came from. I mean, Romans 5 is a corporate view of humanity. Remember, we're, we're 20,000 feet now. And looking at the whole human race, the, the head of humanity is Adam. He, he's the one who introduced sin in, into the world. Now, he'll take that a step further in a minute, but, but he says, Adam, introduce sin. Theologians call this the doctrine of original sin, or, or better, inherited sin. And because Adam is our original father in, in one sense, we have all sinned in him. Adam stands at the head of, of the human race, and that's what's covered in the first part of, of verse 12. His focus is on Adam and, and his work. And in the second half of verse 12, he clearly says you can't blame all of your guilt on Adam, because the end of verse 12 says that we have sinned personally and individually. Look at the end of verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so now here's the individual part, so death spread to all individuals, to all men. Why? Because all individuals or all people have, have sinned. That phrase, all sin, means. This is what Augustine got right theologically 
but wrong exegetically. I mean, he, he was using a Latin translation, which interpreted, you know, in quo, in, as in Adam. I mean, we inherited Adam's guilt and nature, but our sin is also on, on God's ledger. I mean, if you put the whole verse together, I mean, Paul is clearly teaching that, that Adam's sin is the reason human beings come into the world condemned and corrupted and spiritually dead. You have the taint of Adam. But because we do, human beings sin personally, which confirms and warrants this, this reign of death. Or to say it simply, we, we sin and die because of both Adam's original sin and our personal sin. But he doesn't leave us there, thankfully. <laughs> It'd be a depressing passage if he did. But look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type, watch this, of him who is to come. Now, it's the first breath of air. He points us to the hope. The word for type is tupas, a prototype. Just as Adam's failing work affects all of humanity, all of humanity in him, there's another figure coming. And that other figure will bring a victorious work who will affect all of those in him as well. I mean, Adam is a prototype of the original creation and therefore the fall, and Christ is the head of the new creation and, and salvation. And what Adam brought us was, was sin, the universal reach of it. And then there's also a result. Here's the second explanation of where, where death comes from. It, it comes from the universal result of, of sin's presence. Look at verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, that's Adam, and death through sin. Paul now adds a phrase, but it's a very important phrase. He adds a phrase which defines the result of sin coming into the world. I mean, the entrance of sin brought death. You probably know that because you live in this world. But I want you to notice what this passage says about death. It says it was not a natural result of living in the world. I mean, it says it was a byproduct of sin. Death is a byproduct of, of Adam's fall. It, Paul clearly says death is, was not part of, uh, of, the, of God's original design of, of the world. It's not an original part of living in the world. It became a reality after the fall. That's what this verse says. It entered after Adam brought sin into the world. That's why evolution is incompatible with Christianity in the Bible. Because evolution demands that there is death and disease before sin. But Paul clearly says that death was added because of sin, because of Adam's disobedience. And listen, that's also why death seems so unnatural and so unfair to us. It's because it is. You are not meant to die. And when you feel that, that sense facing death, that this is wrong, that you're, it's your instinct of creation that, that's still there rising up. It's God's image in you that, that's going off saying, this is not right. It's because it's not right. And if you recall, that's what Ecclesiastes told us in chapter 3. He, that's God, has made everything appropriate in its time. This is the 
God's sovereignty, one of the tools that, that he gives you in, in, in navigating the, the curse. God has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also set eternity in their hearts, in your heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I mean, Solomon says God made us with eternity in our hearts, meaning we were made to live forever. It's one of the two places where Solomon explained to us why life on earth is so frustrating, why, why it feels so, so vain at times. The first reason is man can't find satisfaction anywhere in the world because God's removed our ability, the curse has removed our ability to, to, to find satisfaction. That was in Ecclesiastes 2. There is, something, or there is nothing in a man to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the, the, the hand of God. Solomon said that, that part of the, of the curse was, has, been, has taken away man's ability to be satisfied. I mean, he, he's removed our capability or capacity to find lasting satisfaction here. That, that, that's just baked into the cake. I mean, you can't get around it. You can't remove it. I mean, part of the curse is dissatisfaction. You will not, in fact, you cannot find lasting enjoyment without God. The good news is you can with Him. I mean, think about it. You're keenly aware that even the best moments of enjoyment in, in this life or best pleasures never fully satisfy, do they? I mean, the greatest moments of this life just want you, just leave you wanting something more. I mean, whatever it might be, the mountain or the sunset or something that you've never seen before, when that takes your breath away, it's not long before you find a desire for something more. And there's a question that comes into your heart. You may not even speak it audibly, but you think it. Is this it? I mean, there's a restlessness that's innate to, to human beings now. I mean... You're never completely satisfied, are you? You have a good meal and it's so good, then you want dessert. You enjoy a good day and doing everything that you love to do, and then you get, get this unfulfilled feeling that, that it wasn't enough. I mean, you search and you search and, and you, can, you can never find it, and you sense that there must be a beauty beyond all beauty, and, but you never land on it. You, you're never able to light you're like a hummingbird, just moving around. You find a flower and then move to another. And it's not age-specific, right? I mean, when, when my kids were growing up, I mean, one of their great deprivations was not being allowed to have caffeine past a certain time at night. And I can remember one of them saying, I can't wait till I grow up. When I do, I'm going to drink Diet Pepsi as late as I want, and no one can stop me. And guess what? Right now... He can do that. And you know what else? He doesn't care anymore. I mean, like me, there's something else that he's not satisfied about. I can't wait till I'm married, then I'll be satisfied. And once married, I can't wait to get a job, then I'll be satisfied. Did the job satisfy? Did the promotion satisfy? It didn't. I mean, once having the job, I can't wait till I have kids, then I'll be fulfilled and and then you get a kid, and, and, and what are you saying? I can't wait till they grow up, and it's just me and the missus again. And, 
And then it's just the two of you. Now it's just you and the missus again. And you say, I'm so alone, this empty nest. I wish the kids were back. And, and on and on. It's not resource specific either. Rich and poor long for what they don't have. I mean, dissatisfaction comes no matter what fills your hand. I mean, you, you can have little and want more. You can have more and want less or more still. You know why? Because man is never fully satisfied in this life. It's part of the curse. You feel that there's more to life than this, though. And that's the evidence of the image of God. You just know. And that's frustrating. There's no lasting pleasure in life. You were created for for something eternal. You were created for lasting pleasure. Something that fully satisfies, that brings complete contentment. But right now you're cursed and you live in a, a Genesis 3 world and... When you put those two things, it brings, brings frustration, which is what that other passage in Ecclesiastes 3 was talking about. God has put eternity in our hearts that brings a longing for something durable. Because of the curse, we, we sense that there's something permanent, and we're not. We live in a world that's passing away. And death, as I said, is the greatest frustration of all. I mean, we are people not meant to die in a world full of sin and death. And if you don't look up to God whenever you, you feel that, that frustration, then you're going to stumble over questions that, that, that may come in your heart, like injustice or, or death or emptiness here and now. And if you don't look down at man and realize the source of the curse is not God... But it's the sin of, of human beings and, and our corruption, then you're going to misplace blame and you're going to look in the wrong place for answers. Or to say it simply, a corrective view of God brings an accurate view of man and life, which is what Paul is doing here. He's giving us a correct view of, of Adam, of man, and then a correct view of Christ. They're, they're, they're twins. A, Proper view of God and a proper view of man. They're building blocks for wisdom to help you deal. They're, they're like the, 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 the sand and the cement. Together they, 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 make, they make mortar that hold the bricks of a fallen life together, especially whenever the wall leans or the wind blows. I mean, that's what Paul is trying to give us here. Because of sin, death has entered into the world, and death was, was not there before, and that death has spread to, to all people, which is the third explanation that, that he gives here. It's not just limited to Adam, it's spread to us. The individual reign of sin's consequence. Here is the, the last half of verse 12. Look at verse 12 where, where he transitions to, to individuals. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. That's Adam. He started it. And death through sin. There's the, there's the consequence or the result. And so death spread to all men, all individuals. Tom Schreiner said sin and death are twin powers that entered the world when Adam fell. Sin and death are in, is something that's inherited though, which is what Paul's saying here. It's what he means. So death spread to all men. And the evidence that sin is contagious, the evidence that, that we fell in Adam, the evidence that we, 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 have, we have an inheritance that comes to us through Adam is because everyone dies. 
I mean, one of the most obvious things about the human body is that it's fragile and that it's perishable. Bodies get sick. Bodies get out of shape. They, they get weak. And they eventually succumb to, to the curse. I mean, there's no stopping it. Whether you're 10 or whether you're 114, you're on the, you're on the downgrade. And billions of dollars are spent trying to preserve life and, and find a way to extend it or to, to cheap death. I mean, last year, Medicare paid $50 billion just for doctor and hospital uh, payments in the last two months of a, of a patient's life. Just doctors and hospitals, just Medicare in the last two months of a patient's life. Now, just to give you some context, the entire budget of the Department of Homeland Security is $52 billion. And you say, what's $50 billion in light of $23 trillion or $30 trillion or whatever the number is the politicians have for us now? Just think of the comparison. The entire budget of the Department of Homeland Security is spent in the last two months of a human life on just two, two, two items. And it's estimated, and this is a, a, a kind estimate, that 20 to 30 percent of those medical expenditures had no meaningful impact at all. I mean, no matter how much money we spend or how hard uh, we try to avoid it, decaying starts at conception and deterioration continues through life. Muscle loses mass, our skin loses elasticity, we lose teeth, we lose hair, but the only thing we don't lose with age is weight, right? We gain that. It's the clearest consequence, though, of the fall, which no one can deny. We're all irreversibly subject to death. How do you know that there was a curse, there was a fall. How do you know there was an Adam? How do you know that Adam's sin spread to you? How do you know you're a sinner? You die. You, 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 you're corrupted. It's one of the ways. And notice he's not just talking about physical death, but spiritual death as well. Drop down to verse 16. Here's the, when, when the contrast, watch how he, he starts with sin and death. What kind of death in, in verse 12, Paul? Verse 16, the gift, this is what comes from Christ, is not like that which came through the one who sinned, which was Adam. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. And look at verse 18. And so then, as through the one transgression there was condemnation to all, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted in justification of life to all. These are spiritual terms. It's not just physical death, but spiritual death. Paul's connecting physical death with spiritual death, and he even contrasts that with eternal life in verse 21. Verse 21, look at it. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal death... Eternal life, physical death, spiritual death, and now physical life and spiritual life. Physical death and spiritual death both came into the world through Adam's sin. That's where he starts. And those spread to all men. Why? Because all have sinned. How he rounds this passage out. The fourth explanation 
of death is the individual repetition of sin's practice. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. I mean, Paul simply says here, you can't blame Adam without accepting blame yourself. It's very clear that the first half of this verse says that we all inherit the original sin of Adam. How do we know that? As I said, we all die. You can't see the total depravity, like some energy or force. Just like you can't see regeneration. You remember John 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus? Nicodemus is stuck in the whole physical world. He's talking about, except you be born from above, born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? I mean, I can't crawl back in my mother's womb. And, and Jesus says, that's not what I'm talking about. The Spirit blows wherever he, he wishes. I mean, he's talking about the work of the Spirit, but, but the wind is the, is the word that he used, the same word for Spirit. You can't, just like you can't see the wind, you can't see regeneration. How do you know somebody's been born again? There's not a lightning bolt from heaven. You don't hear angels sing but you can clearly see the, the effects of regeneration. You can clearly see the, you can't see the wind, but you can see the, the leaves on, on the trees. You can't see depravity either. You can't see this inherited guilt from Adam, but you can see the effects of it. You can see what comes from your heart, and you can ultimately see it in, in death. This verse is also clear that we send ourselves, individuals and personally, I can remember reading this passage to one of, of the boys explaining original sin. You hear him in childlike like expression say, that's not fair. <laughs> I mean, why do I get judged for what Adam did? And I asked that question myself, so I already had the answer preloaded, and his indignation changed abruptly when I said, so, so you're saying you would like to be judged for your own sin and not, not Adam's sin? Well, hmm, I'm not sure I want, I want either one of those, which is the point. You can't separate the second half of this verse from the first. I mean, sin and death entered the world through Adam's transgression. We come into the world tainted. We come into the world dying. But sin and death are conjoined twins that cannot be separated. And he'll show us that in chapter 6. It's not some external, sterile reality outside of us. It's, it's an internal power that's affected us deeply. It, terms like death reigning or the power of sin or being a slave to, to sin. But you cannot divorce judgment from our own sin. Because this says we all have sinned. I mean, and so both are true. And both of our both are part of our guilt before God. We sin in we sinned in Adam, and we sinned on our own. We have personal and individual sin. But Paul repeatedly says here that we experience death and judgment because of, of Adam's fall. But now do you want the good news? On the flip side, he says, those in Christ have been set free from sin and death. I mean, for the Christian, sin and death is a foe, but it's a defeated foe. In Christ, sin, its reign has been defeated, and death is a reality that has no lasting power any longer. It, 
it's like a bee without a, a stinger. It's like a bear without claws, a rooster without spurs. I mean, you don't like it. It hurts. You feel the frustration. You feel this is not right. But it has no real power over you because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you know Christ, that's the case. But if you don't know Christ, you're born in a sin-cursed world. You live in vanity, in frustration, only to die. And when you die, it gets worse, much worse. And while you're here, there's no lasting satisfaction. Ecclesiastes 2.25, For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? Him being God. Without God, there is no enjoyment in anything. And yet in that curse, in the reality of death and it's not right, and in the reality of no satisfaction, there's, there's hidden grace. Because those are the things that actually lead us to Him. I mean, the curse puts sinners on an endless search to find something or someone to satisfy. And then when they don't find it, the Lord grants them a hearing of the gospel. And whenever they turn to Him, their search is finally over. You tired of, a, of an endless search for something better? Something that satisfies? Someone to make sense out of, out of death? Paul says, come to Jesus Christ. He is the, the water that if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. I mean, He's the bread that, that when you eat, you, 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 He takes away your hunger. And once you find Him, you, you can... You can even enjoy things that, that only brought futility before and only in Him will you find hope in death and will life truly make sense. You this morning are either in Adam or you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, He is greater than Adam and His reach goes far beyond Adam. Adam's is this earth. Christ is this earth in all e eternity. But you have to come to Him. Him way. His way. By faith. Offered by grace. Complete in His perfect work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before You, we, we, we thank You. We love You, Lord. We thank you that you love us, and we have experienced what, what Solomon's talking about, what, what Paul is talking about. We, we've sensed the frustration. We have all been brought near to, to death and, and had the cry in our heart, this, this is not right, and it's not. But the hope is, the, the answer is not to not to look elsewhere, find our answers elsewhere, or to get mad at you. Our hope is to look up and, and see that you're the only one that did something. Why doesn't God do something? Why don't you do something about the evil and the sin and the death that's in the world? And your answer is you did. What you did is you came as the God-man, Jesus Christ. You died yourself and then you rose from the dead. That's the answer to the curse. And in Jesus, we have that hope. 
now and for all eternity. And we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.